Since the start of the war in Ukraine, over 4 million people have fled the country. Earlier this month, Priti Patel announced a visa application centre had been established en route to Calais for Ukrainians trying to come to the UK. But the centre never existed. Days later, the Home Office said it was actually in Lille, but wouldn't reveal where. Officials then claimed that refugees in Calais could get free Eurostar tickets to travel to the centre, despite the fact that the Eurostar doesn't actually stop in Calais. A day later, the centre was moved from Lille to a town 30 miles away. What we've seen is a miserly, mean-spirited response where day on day, we've had concessions that are the bare minimum of what we think we can get away with. I mean, this is potentially the worst crisis since World War II, when the Refugee Convention, of course, was developed. We can't turn our back on it. We actually have a responsibility to play our part. And it's not right to say, well, no, it's all on France. It's all on Italy. It's all on Poland. That's not how international refugee protection works. So why has the government response been so chaotic? What are the barriers for refugees travelling to the UK? And with an anti-refugee bill moving through Parliament as we speak, What does this mean for how we treat refugees in the future? It's an absolute tragedy that we have a government that is so ill-equipped and so ill-prepared to be able to respond to refugee protection needs such as this. The government is right in the middle of trying to push through some legislation, the new Nationality and Borders Bill, which would actually not just penalise, but potentially criminalise For example, Ukrainian or other refugees arriving if they didn't have all their paperwork on order um, on arrival here. We really think that the situation in Ukraine and and, and the spotlight that's shining on our failing protection systems needs to feature very heavily in that debate in the Commons. Welcome to the New Economics Podcast. This week, we're asking, why is the government punishing refugees rather than protecting them? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. So this week, I'm really pleased to be joined down the line by Bella Sankey, Director of Detention Action. Thanks so much for being with us, Bella. Hi. So yes, I'm really looking forward to diving into this chunky conversation, and it's super great to have an expert to help us do that. So let's start off with some of the bigger picture. Millions of Ukrainians, as I said in the intro, have had to flee their homes to escape bombing and conflict. So for those trying to find safety in the UK, what steps do they have to take? So our government has adopted a position towards Ukrainian refugees which maximises bureaucracy and barriers, which has made it incredibly difficult for people to access and navigate any sort of safe or formal route to reach the shores of the UK. The government is insisting on complex and lengthy visa application forms And it's also requiring Ukrainians that are seeking to come to the UK to either have a family member here that they could come and reunite with or to access a community sponsorship scheme, essentially be sponsored by an individual or a family or a business here in the UK. This is all instead of adopting an approach to refugees which would recognise that people need to be given access and safety on the basis of need rather than, you know, whether they can successfully advertise themselves to a stranger on a social media website. And it also flies in the face of universal refugee protection 
as has been practiced for decades since we became a founding signatory to the Refugee Convention, which asserts that refugee protection must be on the basis of need and irrespective of nationality and and family connections. That's super helpful, Bella. Thanks so much. So you mentioned the schemes there, and I wanted to pick that up for a bit of help understanding what they actually are. So there's two ways Ukrainian refugees can use these schemes to come to the UK. So there's the family scheme that you mentioned and the Homes for Ukraine Community Sponsorship Scheme. Could you just tell us a little bit more about what they are and how they work? So the family scheme is essentially a slight extension of a visa route that already exists, which allows family members of people who are in the UK to bring them over to live with them. Ordinarily, a family visa route is restricted to partners, spouses, and children under 18. What the government has done in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine is to say that Ukrainians that fall within a a slightly wider definition of the family, so adult children, elderly relatives, nephews, nieces, etc., can take advantage of, of, of this route. So they've expanded the categories, essentially. It's important to be clear, this is not being provided as a refugee protection initiative. The government is really clearly trying to confine this to be an extension of a family visa, not properly recognising the scale of what's going on, just how much you know in fear and in need people are that need to take advantage of this scheme. It's important, I think, also to note that this slight relaxation of the family rules only applies to Ukrainians. There's been no similar response to Afghans in the UK that may be looking to bring extended family members over to reunite with them. So it's also a highly discriminatory response that basically pits one nationality above another when it comes to refugee protection, but all all the while denying that this is essentially refugee protection, pretending that it's something else. The community sponsorship scheme is the kind of second part of the government's response. And this is the scheme that is really the government trying to sort of offload its responsibilities to private citizens and families and private businesses here in the UK. Now, you know, make no mistake, it's absolutely fantastic that so many members of the British public have stepped forward and signed up for this scheme. And I think it really demonstrates who we are as a country and the level of concern and support that people want to provide. But it is ludicrous to set up a system that requires Ukrainians to find sponsors here in the UK. It really is the government passing the buck. It shouldn't be made the responsibility of desperate people fleeing the most horrendous atrocities that we're seeing every single day in Ukraine to be able to find sponsorship in this way. It raises all sorts of concerns around safeguarding and trafficking and and the safety of, you know, women and children that may be brought to the UK under this scheme. And again, it's the government essentially passing the buck and not stepping up and providing the route and the security and the safety themselves. 
Yeah, I mean, in terms of the community sponsorship scheme, I saw that less than one in 10 applications have been approved from the 150,000 applications that people have made to be hosts. And some people have called it false hope and other people a gimmick. Why is it that so few applications are being approved? And, And would you agree that above and beyond what you're saying and that it's a deeply insufficient and problematic response anyway, it's also a waste of time that's not actually going to yield results? Well, it's an incredibly kind of slow and bureaucratic way to go about trying to provide the sort of protection that is needed in, let's face it, a complete emergency situation where speed and efficiency and pace are required. Instead, the government is essentially set up a very cumbersome and bureaucratic process that is also deeply discriminatory in in the way that it operates. I've heard of a Syrian person who fled Syria for Ukraine, has lived in Ukraine for a number of years, has fled now fled Ukraine and applied to come to the UK under the under this scheme, but has been refused because he has a Syrian passport and not a Ukrainian passport. So again, it's a slow, it's a bureaucratic, it's a cumbersome response that also institutionalizes discrimination on the grounds of nationality and raises massive safeguarding issues. I think it's really important to note that as well as these two really insufficient and problematic schemes that the government's announced, it has all the while been pushing through legislation that would mean that a Ukrainian orphan, a Ukrainian mother and child, a Ukrainian family, you know, a Ukrainian adult that arrives in the UK without having come through one of these schemes is going to be criminalized, could potentially be imprisoned for up to four years and could then be liable to be being sent to an offshore detention camp. And it really beggars belief that this is the policy, this is the law that the government is putting on the statute book as we speak in the form of the Nationality and Borders Bill. So not only is it an insufficient kind of so-called bespoke response to Ukrainian refugees, but it's also meanwhile slamming the door in the faces of many. Yeah. So I want to come back to this idea of it being a kind of bespoke response. And also, as you say, the kind of tension and the contradictions between this response and the response to other refugee crises that we've seen recently in a little while. But just to stay with the UK government's response for a second, how does it compare to other countries in Europe in terms of responses to the refugee crisis in Ukraine specifically? So I think that across Europe, we've seen other countries respond with much more solidarity to ordinary Ukrainians. And indeed, across EU countries, including Ireland and those countries that border Ukraine, we've seen a much quicker, a much more responsive and flexible policy that's been put in place, which is not requiring people to complete lengthy visa applications, but instead is recognising that refugees have the right to cross borders and to seek protection and need to be granted immediate temporary support while they find safety, find security and and start to rebuild their lives. Mm, So some refugees have said that they were forced to return to Ukraine because of UK visa delays and others are waiting in underground bomb shelters. But if they are refugees or asylum seekers, why do they even need visas in the first place? Can't they 
enter without a visa and apply for asylum once they're already in the country? So, you know, the UK's response and the UK's message to Ukrainians has been don't come here unless you have a visa or unless you've been, you know, granted permission to come under the community sponsorship scheme. And this has been clearly articulated message from the Home Office. They've been busy tweeting about it and telling people not to come. Now, under international law, under the Refugee Convention, people who are seeking asylum, of course, have the right to cross a border and to ask for that protection. The whole point of the Refugee Convention and the whole point of that moment after the horrors of the Holocaust was that the world recognised that refugees that are fleeing unspeakable atrocities don't have all of their paperwork to hand. They don't have their identity documents and their passports and evidence that might be required by a visa process. And so it's absolutely essential that people are received and supported and given the help that they need to reintegrate and find protection without these kind of technical demands for for visas. But it's that principle that the UK government is currently pulling the UK away from and instead trying to move us to a model that says papers please before we will allow somebody to cross the border. Yeah, coming back to your previous point, why is the government then creating a bespoke policy specifically for Ukrainian refugees? Why aren't they just folding them into the current refugee policies? Is it because of that point that they're trying to pull us away from that convention and towards this new approach, which is much more bureaucratic and ultimately is about helping fewer people? That's exactly right. That's spot on. So the reason why these schemes have been adopted, both the family scheme and the community sponsorship scheme, is because the government is trying to pretend that the people fleeing Ukraine are not asylum seekers and are not refugees. They are instead, you know, people that have arrived on family visas or under community sponsorship. So the language is different. The definition that the government is trying to give people is is different. And that is because they are simultaneously trying to dismantle the refugee protection system with the nationality and borders bill. So by pretending that Ukrainian refugees are something else, they are hoping, I think, to get away with you know, dismantling this system while still being seen to be doing something, at least, for desperate people that are escaping Ukraine right now. Mm, So maybe it would help to kind of zoom out and think about this in the context of other crises. So as we know, seven months after the collapse of Afghanistan's government, I know you mentioned this earlier, there were more than 12,000 Afghans living in UK hotels. So was this another example of a bespoke refugee policy? Was that better? Was that worse? How does that compare? I think it's fair to say that the response to Afghanistan was similarly chaotic. It was similarly very slow. And I think it similarly demonstrates the extent to which over many years now, this government has consistently sought to weaken our ability to respond to refugees in a timely and compassionate and effective way. There is no need for Afghan refugees to be in hotels for prolonged periods, but for the fact that the government has, I believe, quite deliberately wound down our capacity to support refugees in the community, to consider their cases quickly and provide documentation and to give decisions. What we're seeing is the result of years and years of the dehumanisation of refugees in the UK. 
you know, all of the political talk around bogus asylum seekers and all of the efforts to try and minimise and discredit people that come to the UK from all over the world to seek our protection. The government's been doing that with its rhetoric, but also with the way that it manages the system. And, you know, they're now paying the price, but most worryingly, so are uh, the people that have are now caught up in this system and, and aren't being given the support and the reintegration that they need. Yeah. And a lot of the discourse that I've seen around this has focused on the kind of differentiation between not only the government's response, but the government's response to Ukrainian refugees who are often seen as being closer to British people in that they're envisioned as being white, as being European and things like this in comparison, for example, to Afghan refugees who are perceived as being less European in inverted commas. And I guess just to kind of get your thoughts on that, how is the government specifically dividing up different kinds of refugees? And do you see a racialized element there? Um, And also in terms of, I guess, the public response, would you say that the same dynamic is at play? I think it's absolutely the case that the government's response to refugees and the government's refugee policy is institutionally racist. There's no getting around that. It's an incredibly sad and distressing reality. And it's deeply, deeply concerning that this is the response and this is the direction of travel. And the response to Afghanistan, the response to Ukraine, the Nationality and Borders Bill is going to entrench discrimination and segregation in our refugee protection system. The response to Ukraine has been inadequate, but clearly the government is creating a tiered system whereby if you are white and you are Ukrainian, you have privileges as regards, for example, someone from Afghanistan who is non-white, who doesn't have the same privileges But again, somebody from Afghanistan has more privileges than, for example, a Somalian in our system. So there is a hierarchy being created. It's a racialized hierarchy. And, you know, segregation is the right word for it. It is discriminating against people on the grounds of nationality and on the grounds of race. Okay, so let's talk more about the Nationalities and Borders Bill then. Um, it would be great to hear more about what this is going to mean for refugees in the future. I know that Detention Action has campaigned a lot around the bill and in particular the proposals around offshore detention centres. So yeah, could you tell us a bit more about that? Of course. So the Nationality and Borders Bill, I think, is the most authoritarian and populist piece of legislation that I've ever seen pass through our parliament and that's in the 15 years that I've been working in home affairs policy. The Nationality and Borders Bill essentially aims to renege, to trash, to destroy the values of the Refugee Convention and as I've said you know this is a convention that really is one of the proudest legacies of the post-Holocaust world. You know this was the convention that was meant to deliver and embody the spirit of never again. And yet here we are with the nationality and borders bill. It's quite staggering in what it does. It would criminalise somebody that comes to the UK through a means or through a route that hasn't received kind of pre-authorisation and pre-validity sort of from the Home Office, from the Home Secretary. This could include an orphan child a person who has been trafficked or subjected to modern day slavery, 
somebody who's suffered horrendous torture and mistreatment. My organization, Detention Action, works with people that have made these journeys and have suffered these horrendous experiences day in and day out. So we have a very good idea of just how deeply traumatized and vulnerable many of these individuals are and just how harmful it is to say that not only will they not be supported but they will actually be punished by this law they will be punished for coming here they'll be punished for having experienced the things that they've experienced and having fled and sought protection from us as well as being criminalized the bill also allows for what's known as offshore processing and detention and I don't think that this clause has really been given enough attention yet because what the clause in this bill would do is essentially if it was fully implemented essentially shut down the UK's asylum system altogether and it gives the government the power to send every single asylum seeker that comes to the UK to another country, which could potentially include an offshore prison camp, the type that was set up by Australia on some Pacific islands around a decade ago. And then once, you know, out of sight, out of mind, they would no longer, according to the bill, be the concern of the UK. And this would be irrespective of their circumstances. Again, we could be talking about orphan children women that have survived sexual violence and rape. And they would then be the concern, the responsibility of an as yet unknown third country. So it's really seeking to allow the UK to completely wash its hands of any refugee responsibilities. You know, it's been condemned by the UN. It's been condemned by anybody that has an understanding about refugee protection and the need to support people that have been severely harmed. And yet this government has shut its ears to all of those concerns and pressed ahead with this bill. And I think most distastefully of all in terms of the government's approach, they also are weirdly trying to claim that the bill somehow will allow them to provide better protection for those who need it. That's one of the claims that's made. Again, the sort of abusive language by this government to kind of argue that black is white and to make, you know, completely false claims for for the things that they're doing. Uh, is quite staggering. I mean, staggering is certainly the word I was about to use. I think I've definitely heard about elements of the bill, but nothing that was as comprehensive as that. And as you say, it's just so shocking. And it seems that there should be such outrage about this across the world, really. It seems to me to be quite unprecedented. I mean, where is the bill at now? I know it went to the House of Lords and then parts of it were voted back. So what stage is it at at the moment? And is there any chance that it actually won't pass? What does the future look like for this bill? Right. So you're, you're absolutely right to say that it's um, it had a mauling in the House of Lords, actually, quite rightly so. And peers from all parties and none did the absolutely essential work, the essential democratic work of properly scrutinising the bill and taking the government to task and voting out the most, you know, the, the absolute worst bit. So the offshore detention power came out the power to treat people differently according to you know the route that they've taken to the UK came out powers around stripping the citizenship of british citizens without giving them notice and, and chance to appeal came out unfortunately 
this government whipping operation in in the House of Commons meant that all of the work that the House of Lords did was undone, apart from a few, you know, notable and, and, and respectable exceptions. In the House of Commons, David Davis MP, Andrew Mitchell MP and Simon Hoare MP, all Conservative backbenchers led the charge against offshore detention and voted against the government on those provisions. But it was only three Conservative MPs that did that. And so now we're in this stage called ping pong. The bill is due to return to the House of Lords on the 4th of April on Monday. And it's then for the Lords to decide what further amendments they're going to try and insist on. And then the bill will then again return to the House of Commons. So it goes backwards and forwards at this point. The House of Commons, and in particular, the government and its conservative backbenchers have made pretty clear that they intend to get all of this bill through onto the statute book, irrespective of the concerns that are being raised. And personally, I mean, where do you think it will end up if the bill is going against international agreements? As you say, will that stop the government from enacting it? Or are we likely to just see all of this come to pass, you know, in the coming years, no matter what? This government shows an absolutely flagrant disregard for the rule of law. It thinks it's above the law, whether that's, you know, drawing up legislation that clearly breaches international obligations, whether it's refusing to follow its own COVID regulations and guidance and throwing parties in number 10 Downing Street. This government truly believes that the law is for the little people and not for it. And, you know, we see this day in, day out with government policymaking, with government rhetoric and with statements from the government's law officers. So I have no doubt that irrespective of the you know, clear unlawfulness of parts of this piece of legislation, the government will press ahead as swiftly as as it can with implementing the law. And I think it will face a huge amount of legal challenges as a result. Very sadly, although we may be successful in, in challenging some of the worst aspects of this bill, what happens in the meantime is that people, again, who have suffered truly unthinkable and unspeakable atrocities, things that leave people with lifelong trauma, are going to face even more barriers, even more pain, even more disrespect from this government, are going to be left in limbo, are going to be prosecuted, are going to be imprisoned, are potentially going to be sent to offshore detention centres. Like This is what the government wants to do and this is what it will try to do for as long as it can. Yeah, we're going to wrap up in a sec, but I just feel like it would be probably quite useful to end with a little bit of an interrogation of the government's motivations here. I mean, polling has shown that 54% of people support allowing an unlimited number of Ukrainians to come to the UK without the need for a visa, just as an example of how out of step it seems the government currently are with public opinion. So I guess my final question is between the kind of hoops that refugees have to jump through to find safety in this country and the anti-refugee bill that we've talked about moving through Parliament, why is this government so focused or more focused on designing a kind of cruel and exclusionary system than actually offering protection or safety for refugees? How would you describe their motivations? Because I really do think it's important for us to try and engage with that and understand what's going on there. 
as someone who closely follows this government's pronouncements and, and policy making and lawmaking, my view is that this government genuinely believes that politicizing refugee protection, dog whistling when it comes to foreign nationals and scapegoating and dehumanizing black and brown people, um, you know, benefits it, politically speaking. I think that they believe that they have a small base of support that gets very exercised when they do this and that it is a successful political strategy. I think they're wrong about this, but I think that if you look at the approach that many members of the current government took to their Brexit campaign, where such a focus was given to misleading comments about EU citizens and and what remaining in the EU would mean, I think that they believe that that was a winning strategy for them and is something that they need to keep doubling down on. So, you know, once it was no longer about free movement and once they'd legislated on that point, they've decided to go after refugees and to go after asylum seekers, irrespective of the human cost. I think that is what motivates them. Yeah, I'd I'd definitely be inclined to agree. I guess just so that it's not all doom and gloom and that we're giving listeners something to kind of feel hopeful about. What would you say, Bella, are some of the alternatives that you think the government should be doing instead, both in the short term to help Ukrainian refugees, but also in the long term? What should people who care about creating a safe and protective environment for refugees be advocating for when it comes to making the UK a safer place for people fleeing conflict? Look, it's definitely not all all doom and gloom. Um, something that this country is absolutely amazing at in our, you know, communities and our towns and our cities and, and, and our villages is providing support and showing compassion for refugees. There are so many networks and alliances and community groups up and down this country. If you don't already know about your local group or a national campaign and charity that you're engaged with, please look one up because we have such a vibrant civil society that picks up so much of the slack and does so much of the work that the government should be doing. And, you know, my organisation and our allies and partners are doing this work day in and day out. And we really welcome support and we really welcome people volunteering their time to support refugees and, and asylum seekers. There are so many ways in which we could create a policy and a framework that genuinely welcomes and supports people that come to this country seeking protection. And this bill, I don't think, can stand. And I think that with collaboration and with solidarity and with, you know, those everyday acts of resistance and supporting the people that need it, we can help defeat this agenda. Yeah, definitely. I mean, from my vantage point at the New Economy Organisers Network, as you say, we kind of spend a lot of time seeing the brilliant work that is being done on the ground around this. I think the resistance is absolutely phenomenal and listeners should certainly look out for ways to get involved in that, but also not despair because the work is being done to challenge this and they can be part of it. We we just have to not give up hope, which is probably quite a cheesy way to end, but it feels very, very true. 
Um, that is sadly all we've got time for on this week's episode of the new economics podcast. Bella Sankey, thank you so much for being with us. If people want to get involved and find out more about your work specifically and, and support the efforts that we've laid out here, um, where would you direct them? How can they do that? I would direct people to Detention Action's social media sites. If you just put Detention Action into Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, will will come up. And we are constantly letting people know about ways that they can support the work that we do, either financially or through volunteering and yeah, keeping people up to date on our activities. So yeah, please do check us out. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Bella. That is it for today's new economics podcast. We'll be back in two weeks. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at NEF on Twitter. The New Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation, produced by Becky Malone and researched by Margaret Welsh. I'm still Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe.